Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Joel chapter 1. Book of Joel chapter 1. If you're looking in your pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 965. Uh, many cultures throughout history have produced sages who dispense wisdom and memorable sayings. And I'm not suggesting that Mike Tyson is our best example, but uh, he is well known for one proverb, and that is that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And there is some proverbial truth to that. Every one of us experiences events in our lives that are disorienting and impactful, like getting punched in the mouth. I'm talking about one of those life events that once you experience it, you realize nothing after it will ever be the same as it was before. And we have been enduring an event collectively over the past year like that. In some ways, this pandemic has been like an extended, disorienting, global gut punch. And the prophets ministered during a similar time of upheaval and chaos when people's lives were being tossed around. And Joel's generation seems to have had the attitude that all of this trouble will pass quickly. We just have to get through it, and then things can go back to normal. I just want to ask you, does that attitude sound familiar at all? Joel's message was not, let's just get through this together and then things can go back to normal. His message is, things are never going back to the way they were. So don't wait for the trouble to pass. Stop right now in the middle of the trouble and consider what God is teaching us in the midst of it. And let this trouble lead you to a deeper dependence on the Lord. That's a message that we still need to hear today. And so we're going to read together in Joel chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. 
Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the, of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we hear this word that your prophet spoke so many years ago, that we would hear it um, as a word to us as well, as we know our brother Paul said that what you said to generations in the past, you said for us and for our children. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear this and that we would not be more foolish than the beasts who groan or even the ground who mourns, but that we would pay attention to your word and respond rightly. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, there was a movie that came out uh, some years back. I'm sure some of you have seen it. It's called Taken. Liam Neeson stars as a dad who's, uh, whose daughter gets abducted while she's on vacation in Europe. And right before the abduction takes place, he is on the phone with her. And uh, he has experience with things like this. And so he says something to, to the effect of, listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you. And then he tells her, here's what's going to happen, and here's what I want you to do because of what is happening. If you want to, to be safe and for me to be able to come in and, and save the day, here's what you need to do. The book of Joel is kind of like that phone call, okay? Joel is saying to his generation, here's what's happening. This is what is about to happen. And this is what you need to do because of it. And so you have to get your bearings, you have to pay attention, you have to listen, and you have to act quickly. So that's how we're going to break this chapter down. We're going to see what was happening, and then we'll see what God tells His people to do because of it. So first, we're going to see what was happening. I want to show you three things about what was happening back then. First, what was happening was catastrophic utterly and totally devastating. It's, it's not until you get to verse 4 that Joel actually tells us what this event is. He starts out by saying, hear this, give ear, everybody listen. This is something that has never happened before, and it's something that you're going to tell your children about and their children on down the generations. This is a massive event that's about to unfold or that is unfolding. And then in verse 4, he finally tells us what it is. It's a locust invasion. Now, locusts, not something we have a lot of experience with. They're kind of like overgrown grasshoppers. They, they have to have the right sort of climate, climate. And, that, and that sort of thing for them to grow this big. 
Um, but they're, they're known for their ability to swarm and to bring substantial widespread agricultural destruction. And, and anyone who, if you had been reading the, the Bible, you know, if you started in Genesis and then you read through, by the time you get to Joel, you would already know that locusts are bad news because this is something that, that God brought upon the people of Egypt back in the book of Exodus, one of the, the ten plagues that God sent on them in order to bring His people out of their slavery. Uh, Joel uses four distinct words to describe these locusts. And some translations, depending on what you have, they, they take it to mean different stages of locust growth. Others take them to mean different kinds of locusts. So the ESV says in verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and so on. The point is not to give us a lesson in entomology Joel is not saying, okay, let me sit down and explain to you, you know, how locusts grow or the different kinds of locusts. That's not the point. The point is to emphasize how utterly desolated the land is, right? So what one locust left, another is eaten, and what that locust left, another is eaten, and so on and so forth. Everything is totally destroyed. Now, now prophets sometimes use figurative language, right, to describe real-life events. So one question we have to ask is, when, when Joel talks about these locusts and the destruction they bring, is, are, are we supposed to take that literally? Or is this a metaphor for something else? Um, in, in chapter 2, Joel is going to describe an army. And yet he describes them scurrying along walls and climbing into people's homes through the windows, which sounds like bugs. But then he also says that they set things on fire and they charge through battle lines like warriors on chariots, which sounds like a human army. So are the locusts like an army? Or is there an army that is like locusts? Which one is the metaphor and which is the real event? Or are they both literal? Some people take Joel to mean that there was a literal locust invasion that was then followed by a literal army invasion. Either way, not 100% clear, but either way, the point is that what happened was catastrophic. The land is totally desolate and destroyed because of this invasion. So that's the first thing, is that what was happening is catastrophic. The second thing I want you to see is that what was happening was threatened in the past. This should not have caught anybody off guard. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, God reminds His people about the covenant that He's made with them. And He says to them, there are a list of blessings. If you keep the covenant, then good things will happen. And there are also a list of curses. If you break the covenant, if you continue to live unrepentantly and you don't return to me, then here are the bad things that will happen to you. And, and among that list of bad things that would happen, God warned them that He would bring what we might call natural disasters like plagues, pestilence, drought, and things like that. Verse 7 speaks of one such calamity when it says, It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Again, that could be literal. Locusts have been known to literally strip the bark off of trees. There was a, apparently a grasshopper horde that attacked California in 1960, and one of the agricultural officials that went out said that they had left the fields as bare as the floor. I mean, it was just totally like you were walking on carpet. That's how bare they had stripped everything. 
But it could also be figurative when he talks about his vine and his fig tree being laid waste because vine and fig tree are common metaphors that God uses in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. Down in verse 10, Joel says, The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Grain, wine, and oil. Those were the three essential staples of a Mediterranean diet at the time. If you don't have grain, wine, and oil, you can't have something to drink. You can't have bread. You can't have oil for your lamps and things like that. These were things that people relied on in their day-to-day -day life for life to be normal. And yet all of those things are being threatened. Life itself is being threatened. And so you have in chapter 1 things that sound like natural disasters, whether that's infestation of pests or drought or something like that. And then along with those warnings, God also warned them back in Deuteronomy that they would be invaded and overthrown by foreign nations. And we know from the rest of Old Testament that that happened. And here in verse 6, God says, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So ruthless armies are either already invading or they are on the threshold. So you have plagues, drought, invading armies. No one who was paying attention should have been caught off guard by those things. What was happening had been threatened in the past. And then the third thing I want you to see about what was happening is that it was a precursor of the future. What was happening here, what Joel is describing here, is a foretaste of what is to come. So people disagree on whether to take Joel literally or metaphorically with the locusts and all that kind of stuff. But there's one point that is indisputable, that he's, he's telling his generation that all of this desolation that's happening, it is a warning of something that is to come. He wants his generation to wake up to that fact, that what is happening right now is a warning of what's to come. Locusts, Droughts, foreign armies, all of these pale in comparison to what Joel calls in verse 15, the day of the Lord. He says, the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Now, the day of the Lord is a prominent theme that runs through this whole book, and we're going to come back to it next Sunday, Lord willing, and kind of think more about what is the day of the Lord. But what I want us to see right now is that the prospect of this day should cause the people of God to consider their ways and to respond rightly. So along with seeing what was happening, we need to hear what God told His people to do because of what is happening and what is coming. So I want to summarize His instructions to them with four simple words. Wake up and lament. Wake up and lament. These are the, the two things that God consistently tells His people in this chapter that they need to do. The first thing that has to happen is they have to wake up to the seriousness of their situation. This is like Liam Neeson telling his daughter, pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. Right? Joel says in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards. Now, it's possible he was speaking to literal drunkards because they're known to drink so much they pass out, right? It seems 
more likely to me that he was describing Describing the the nation in this way. You have gotten drunk on your prosperity and your ease, and that's caused you to become lax. You have fallen asleep. You have you've stopped paying attention to what God has said in His Word. And because of that, you don't even see the, the destruction that has come upon you as something that God had warned you about. So you have to wake up and pay attention. And once you've gotten yourself alert, you need to begin lamenting. So he goes on there in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. And then down in verse 8, he uses this really arresting image. He says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. So, what's that image about? So, imagine a bride on her wedding day. She's supposed to be wearing white. It's supposed to be a joyful occasion, right? This is something that she and her groom have been looking forward to. Their families, hopefully, are excited about it. But now imagine that the wedding day has come, and her groom, the man that she was supposed to marry and spend the rest of her life with, dies on their wedding day. And so the tragedy is compounded because of the contrast. Instead of joy, there is lament. Now this day that she would have thought about with joy, every year this anniversary will now be the anniversary of the day her beloved groom died. Instead of a wedding, there will be a funeral. And instead of this beautiful white dress, she puts on sackcloth, which was this rough, scratchy black fabric made from goat's hair. It was supposed to be uncomfortable because it was something that was used for mourning. And that's what God tells His people to do. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. And God tells the priests to do the same thing in verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament O priests. They were supposed to, when they went into the temple, they were supposed to have this beautiful clothing on, right? This clothing that was meant to mimic the, 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 the drapes in the, in the temple itself. The, the, the priests were supposed to be almost like a walking version of the temple, robed in, in purple and gold and all this sort of stuff. And instead, God says, put on sackcloth and lament. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. The thing about locust invasions, or if it's armies that destroyed, it's it's kind of scorched earth sort of thing. The thing is, those kind of calamities, they have long tails to them. If, If harvests are destroyed then you don't have grain, you don't have wine. And those things were used. They were very important, not just for food and for drink, but they were used in the worship in the temple. There were twice daily offerings of grain and wine that were offered to the Lord. And so if those things are dried up, if they're destroyed, then the whole system of worship comes to a screeching halt. So I try to think, you know, what would be the similar experience for us? Because, I mean, if you think about it, Let's say, what are some instruments of our worship? Well, we, we use a piano. If something happened to this piano, God forbid, a boulder fell out of the sky, a meteor fell and destroyed that piano, we could still sing, couldn't we? I mean, if, if some calamity happened and this whole building burned up, we could still worship, right? 
So, so we're not as dependent on those kind of outward things, but a similar experience for us would be when we, when we try to worship the Lord, but we feel that it's empty, right? We, we hear His Word, but it doesn't seem to affect us. It, we just kind of feel numb to it. We may sing, but we feel our words are, are hollow. Maybe we don't even really think about what we're saying. We try to pray, but we struggle to come up with words to pray. And when we do, it feels like they don't get past the ceiling. We feel disconnected from God. That happens to all of us at times. And when it happens, it should be a cause of mourning and lamenting. If there, if there is no genuine heartfelt worship, there has to be wailing and weeping. In verse 14, God instructs the priests to include the whole nation in this act of lament. He says, Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. What God is telling His people to do is you have to stop doing what you're doing. A, a solemn assembly was this event where everyone was supposed to cease from their work for an entire day so that they could focus on calling out to the Lord. So not only were they to cease from eating, but God's effectively telling everybody in the nation, don't go to work. Don't go out to your field. Don't you know, go out, tend to your sheep or whatever it is that you have to do. Don't go into the office. Stop what you're doing because everybody needs to collectively lament and plead with the Lord to act. Cease all your normal activity and devote your attention, devote your energy to prayer and to calling out to the Lord. In fact, when Joel warns them about the day of the Lord in verse 15, he begins, alas, for the day. And the word that's translated alas is an onomatopoeia. That's a word we all learn about when we're kids. An onomatopoeia is, is a word that sounds like the thing it represents, like the word buzz or pop or bang or something like that. So the, the Hebrew word is aha. But it's not aha, like eureka. It's a word that was meant to mimic the sound someone makes when they get the wind knocked out of them. Like, <clears throat> that's what it's supposed to sound like. And so... I was trying to think what would be kind of a similar English onomatopoeia, and the best I could come up with is the word oof. You know, oof, oof. Man, we say oof, that was bad. Oof, that's bad. That's kind of the idea. It's this involuntary groan that comes from a gut punch that says, ooh, this is, this is bad. So that's what God says that this is meant to evoke in His people, is this just like the wind has been knocked out of you, right? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth or they get punched in the stomach. That's true, but when the follower of Christ gets the wind knocked out of them, figuratively speaking, our instinct ought to be that we groan and cry out to the Lord. We don't just try to push through in our own strength. We don't just wait for things to get back to feeling normal. We acknowledge our weakness, we learn to boast in it, and we find His grace sufficient. In other words, we stop and we ask, Lord, what are you trying to teach me about you and about myself because of this painful event? And we see here in Joel 1 that fasting is one way we express 
our dependence on the Lord's all-sufficient grace. Or one way we could say it is that fasting accompanies and intensifies our lament. Fasting is something we do when we are lamenting, and it's something that helps to intensify that calling out to Him. This Wednesday, we're going to have a, a day of prayer and fasting that's focused on our church. And this is my encouragement to, to all of us. Um, let's not just pray, Lord, when will things get back to the way they used to be? Instead, let's pray, Lord, help us to be faithful in the now. Help us to go deeper, not just wider. Help us to grow in faith and in holiness Increase our capacity to love one another. Give us a heart to reach out to others. Help us to lay down our preferences and our comforts to serve one another. I want to encourage you to join me in setting aside this Wednesday to cry out to the Lord with me on behalf of our church. And more broadly, one of the things that we see here in Joel chapter 1 is that every hardship in life, every calamity, no matter what the nature of it is, every calamity should lead us to call out to the Lord. Every every painful circumstance should cause us to stop and ask, Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this? How are you sanctifying me through this? How can this event, as painful as it is, how can this circumstance, as troubling as it is, How can this help me to love you and to love others better? And every hardship in life should remind us that there is a day coming when we will all give account to one who judges justly. Jesus had an experience like that where some of his disciples came to him and they asked him about this calamity that had happened where Pilate had apparently mixed the blood of people with their sacrifices. They were in the temple and Pilate killed them. And Jesus says to them, Repent, or you will all likewise perish. And then he added another one. What about the Tower of Siloam that fell on some people? Do you think that they were more sinful, he asked? No, I tell you, repent, or you will all likewise perish. It's not that bad things happen because necessarily because We've done something awful. Sometimes God's disciplining us in that way. But whatever the case may be, when something painful happens, it should remind us that judgment is coming and that this is an an invitation for us to see that, to see the emptiness of, of sin and the emptiness of trusting in our own strength to confess our weakness to the Lord and to say, Lord, I want to repent and to trust in you anew. The Lord's Supper is something that helps us to express that to Him. It helps us not only to look back to the cross, but also forward to the return of our King. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Notice the tenses You proclaim, present tense, the Lord's death, something that happened in the past until He comes, something that will happen in the future. So this event right now in the present is something that helps us to look back 
to what God has done in the past and look forward to what He will do in the future. And because of that, Paul also warns us in the next verse. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're going to take a moment and examine ourselves. None of us are worthy on our our own to eat the bread or drink the cup, but that's not what it means to eat it in a worthy or an unworthy manner. To eat it in an unworthy manner is to do so without, um, without trusting in Him, without walking in the light and confessing our sin to Him, and without having a desire to please and obey Him. And so right now I want us to take a moment. We're going to have a moment where we can pray, confess any known sin to the Lord, Um, once you have sort of looked in your own heart, look up to Jesus, the one who has died and who has been raised and who is seated at God's right hand, who is interceding for us right now at this very moment, and then we will receive the bread and the cup. So let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the provision you've made for us. And right now in the stillness of this moment, we pray that you would help us to to come into the light. Lord, your word tells us that if we, uh, we walk in darkness, we can't have fellowship with you because you are light. If we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, your word tells us that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we know that our, our uh, receiving the bread and the cup, our receiving of the provision you've made for us is something we do not because we are worthy, but because of your grace, because you are faithful and you are just to forgive and to cleanse, because you were faithful to send your son Jesus to take on flesh to live a sinless life, and then to become sin in our place. Because you were faithful, Lord, to raise him from the dead so that we might be justified in your sight, so that we could be counted righteous before you. And you were faithful to exalt him, to seat him at your right hand, and to give him the name above every name. And we know, Lord Jesus, that one day every knee will bow before you and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And so I pray right now in this moment, Lord, that we would bow our knee, figuratively speaking, before you, that we would confess that you are Lord, that we would look to you uh, to be our Savior and to be our King. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So wherever you're sitting, you should hopefully have some elements there before you. But before you take the bread, I want you to grab your hymnal and uh, turn to number 105 with me. Um, The first element that we take in the Lord's Supper is the bread by which we remember and proclaim the body of Jesus. Joel's generation faced the prospect of physical hunger as their grain was destroyed. But Jesus said in John 6, The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So 
We're going to sing the first verse of number 105, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. As we sing, I want to encourage you to hold that bread in your hand to think on the, the body of our Lord Jesus. So let's sing together. body of Jesus, broken for you. Eat and remember. Now, if you uh, poured that piece of bread out into your hand just then, I would encourage you not to do that with the with the juice because it may not be quite as clean as the bread. The second element we take is the bread, um, excuse me, is the cup. I've confused myself now, by which we remember and proclaim the blood of Jesus. We saw in Joel that Israel bore the curse of breaking the covenant with the Lord. And yet we know from Galatians 3 that God sent His Son Jesus to bear the curse for our sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So when we take the cup, we're proclaiming the blood that was shed to bear God's holy wrath against our sin. We are proclaiming that He drank the cup of God's wrath in our place so that we can have the gift of forgiveness and adoption into God's family. And so we're going to sing the second verse of grace greater than our sin, and then we'll take the cup together. So let's sing. blood of Jesus shed for you. Drink and remember. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in just a moment.
This is our opportunity to respond to the word which we have heard and seen and even tasted today. What a joy and a privilege it is that God gives to us these things by which we can be reminded of His love, of His holiness, and of His willingness to accept anyone who will come to Him in true faith. He shed the blood of His own Son so that He might receive sinners like you and me. So may no one say no to that invitation. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the great lengths to which You have gone that we might be welcomed into Your family. We're thankful that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. For by grace we have been saved. We thank You, Lord, that Your grace is greater than our sin, that, that we cannot out Your grace. That as far as we would try to run, that Your grace will reach us still. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of that and that we would turn and come to You. Lord, that we would be drawn to You by Your grace because You have said that whoever comes to Me I will never cast out. So, Lord, I pray that we would come to You in true faith. Help us, Lord, to be drawn to You today by Your Spirit, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing the last verse of number 105.